three or four week series called Take a Stand. I'll be reading from the book of 2 Samuel in just a moment before I open the word of God with you. Let me share something humorous. A pastor decided to skip church one Sunday and go play golf instead. He told his assistant pastor he wasn't feeling well. He drove to a golf course in another city so no one would know him there. He teed off in the first hole. As he did, a huge gust of wind caught the ball, carried it an extra 150 yards, and dropped it right into the hole for a 450-yard hole-in-one. An angel looked at God and said, what would you do that for? God smiled and said, who is he going to tell? <laughs> in 2 Samuel 23, the Bible lists many of the names and then the specific accomplishments of men that had followed David. In fact, they began following him out of a difficult season of their lives. In 1 Samuel, the Bible says, and David, running from Saul, went to the cave of Adullam, and all the men who were in distress and all those in debt and all those discontented were gathered to him there. So others that had suffered from the culture of that moment or from their own personal difficulties rallied to David, identifying with his own plight. But something happened in that cave. And these men that began to rub shoulders with David suddenly emerged differently. And they did things that the Bible gives an internal record of. Here's a few of the things beginning in verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. The word mighty, Gabor, means champion, means valiant, warriors, powerful, strong. These are the champions of David. There's Josheb Beshebeth, the Takbanite, chief among the captains. He was also called Adino the Isnite because he killed 800 men at one time. So I'm trying to fathom that. There's an army of 800 warriors, and this guy thinks so differently, he says, I can do this. You know your mind is renewed when you think the impossible is possible in the kingdom of God. You know you've been hanging around Jesus when you are no longer intimidated by great mountains or great difficulties, but you think God's got this. And so something in this man, his mind clicked. And it wasn't just that he was a superior warrior, which he would have been, but that God honored his, his, his stand. And God, of course, helped him get this great victory. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines, who were gathered for battle. And all the men of Israel had re retreated except Eleazar. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hands stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to plunder. So he won the battle, but everyone shared in the plunder of the results. So I like this. Eliezer had, had hold, he was holding this, this sword for such a long and intense battle that when the battle was over, his muscles had atrophied and wouldn't let go of the sword. And it's a portrait that when you use God's word in a believing season of your life or a personal prophecy, whatever God speaks to you, whatever spiritual weapon he gives you, when the battle's over, the weapon stays with you. 
you have that grace all the entirety of the rest of your life to use, to share, to multiply, to help others get whatever the expression is. Now here's my message beginning in verse 11. After him, after Eleazar, was Shema. Everybody say Shema. So Shema, that, his name is a derivative of one of the names of God, whose name is Yahweh Shema. And Shema means present. So Yahweh Shema, one of the compound names of God, literally means the God who is present with us always. So Shema, we, we can take some kind of uh, derivative of his name. Here's a guy who's present, okay? He's, he's not absent. He's seizing the day. He's, he's available. After him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Herorite, the Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people, that would be the Jewish people that had farmed it and planted it and had gardened it and now were ready to reap it, they fled from the Philistines. But Shema stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, killed the Philistines, and so the Lord brought about a great victory. I love that story. Father, anoint your word and your servant and your people. Show the devil who is boss today. Let something awaken in our hearts concerning ground you are ready to retake in our lives in this generation. Show the devil who is boss. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I love the story because it, 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 it exemplifies a lot of things. So here comes a group of Philistines and they would, they're coming to steal a harvest and so if, if you're not careful, if you, don't, if you don't learn how to stand against the enemy, he'll steal every breakthrough God's trying to give you. And he'll leave you alone until it's harvest time, until it's breakthrough time, until it's a pivotal moment. Then he'll show up and try to buy pressure or by adversity or by some other mechanism, try to drive you away from something God's given you. Never give up what God's given you. Never let the devil have something he has no right to. Stand your ground. So here comes the Philistines, and all they had to do was show up. There was no conflict. There was no battle. There was no warfare. Everyone on that field left except one person. They all left. Now, I don't want to be too hard on those Israelites because when you've been traumatized, when you've lived under the cruel oppression, like Pastor Jones shared about her own upbringing, when you've been under traumatic events and abuse, what happens is you get broken down. It's not just going through it. It's what it does to you, the residue effect on your soul, and especially your own worth and identity. And so they had been so defeated, they viewed themselves as victims, or they viewed themselves as unable to fight back. You know know the devil's won when you've lost your fight, but you know the devil's going to lose when you get your fight back. When you get your fight back, like Pastor Bonnie said, you get mad at the devil, say, nope, I'm not dying now, and no, you can't have my son, and anything else you touch, devil, you can't have it. And so he, this guy is different, but everyone else is retreating. It's because they, they had developed a fatalistic, a, a philosophy of defeatism, of negativity. See, see, you want to make, be careful that you don't let a few circumstances or even traumatic moments of your life cast your vision for the future as futile or as negative. Well, nothing good's ever going to happen to me. Well, I'm never going to be successful. Oh, I, I'll, I'll never be in a healthy relationship. Oh, zip it. <laughs> zip it good. I think I just, 
abused a rock and roll song from the 80s. So, so be careful that you don't agree with the wrong side about your future. Every time you speak, you're prophesying your future. Make sure you're on God's side. Declare what he would do in your life. So the people that are defeated, and primarily though, it's because they didn't know who they were. See, anybody on God's side could defeat anyone on the enemy's side. The, the sides were clear here. The, the Philistines had false gods and they were oppressing Israel. God wasn't for them. God was for Israelites. They were born in covenant through Abraham. And so God's on this side. But if you don't know who you are, you miss out on what you're able to do. On the authority that is resident in your identity. I, I, I know some of this is old news to you, but the way you see yourself is the way you see everything else. It's impossible to see life right when you see yourself wrong. So it's, it, it's so crucial because now we've never been in a more titanic struggle for identity in our culture than right now. And if you don't know who you are, someone's going to tell you someone you're not. Well, you... You don't know, you should be this or that. But God is the only true source of the revelation of your created destiny and identity as a person. I am who God says I am. And so Shema stands to his ground. But first point, Satan is a thief by nature and by behavior. He will seek to take whatever you don't protect. Now, that's true, it's, you know, the, the, the sad part of that is kind of true generally in life, that we live in a broken world because of sin, and so we have to protect things that we, we wish we wouldn't have to, uh, but we have to protect things because of sinners that steal things. Now, here's, here's Satan, and so Christ gives a beautiful, simple explanation of the of the. Of the, of the gospel, but also of the purpose of his mission. He said this in John 10.10. 10. He, he said, the devil, the thief, comes only to rob, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. To steal. The poor devil. In most churches, he's just completely ignored. He says, what I got to do to get people's attention? People say, well, they, they blame everything on God. God's killing babies, God's passing out cancers, God's causing wrecks, God's, no, no, if, if, if it steals, if it kills, if it destroys, the fingerprints of hell are on it. I, I, I'm sorry, then Christ didn't end, he said, but I've come that you might have a Zoe, life, and life more abundantly. Let me read, uh, there's a great Greek theologian who's written some great books, but uh, Rick Renner translates that, that verse this way. The thief wants to get his hands on every good thing in your life. In fact, this pickpocket is looking for any opportunity to wiggle his way so deeply into your personal affairs that he can walk off with everything you'll hold precious and dear. And that's not all. When he's finished stealing all your goods and possessions, he'll take his plan to rob you blind to the next level. He'll create conditions and situations so horrible that you'll see no way to solve the problem except to sacrifice everything that remains from his previous attacks. The goal of this thief is to totally waste and devastate your life. 
If nothing stops him, he'll leave you insolvent, flat, broke, cleaned out in every area of your life. You'll end up feeling as if you're finished and out of business. Make no mistake, the enemy's ultimate aim is to obliterate you. But I came that they might have, keep, and constantly retrain, retain a vitality, a gusto, a vigor, a zest for living that springs up from deep down inside. I've come that they might embrace this unrivaled, unequaled, matchless, incomparable, richly loaded and overflowing life to the ultimate maximum. That's why Jesus, Jesus said, everything he's doing, I've come to do the opposite. I've come to give you life in an overflowing, glorious, abundant fashion as a, as a child of God. Second point, it's time to take a stand as a child of God by knowing your true identity in Christ Jesus. It's time to take a stand. This is your season to tell the devil you want it all back. This is your season to take a stand for the restoration of everything the enemy has stolen from you and your family. Your latter will be greater than your former. The devil knows the authority God's given you as a believer over him and his kingdom. His greatest fear is that you'll awaken and begin to walk in that authority, breaking every generational curse and demonic assignment against you and your family. The devil knows who you are, do you, do you know? The devil knows he, you have authority over him, do you know? Resist the devil, what happens? He flees. He has to. That's God's authority assignment with us. 1 John 3, one of my favorite verses about our identity says this, Behold what manner, what fashion, what quality of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God. God loved you so much he couldn't do without you and his family. That's, that's love. Hosea 4, 6 says this about the body of Christ. That I, I used to hear people say, well, what you don't know can't hurt you. No, what you don't know can kill you. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. God's talking, he's, he's chastising a backslidden generation through the prophet Hosea. And he says this, man, there. The stuff, the stuff they're ignorant of is causing devastating consequences in their life. I want to read a couple of scriptures really in closing to talk about a contrast. In, in Acts chapter 19, there's an amazing story about a Jewish family that had seven sons. And it wasn't just a Jewish family. It was a high-ranking religious family, the sons of a high priest named Sceva. In Acts chapter 19, it, it reads like this. And... Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, verse 13, took it upon themselves to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And so deliverance was being practiced by people that had seen it, disciples do it, and heard about the power that Christ had. And so they would say, we command you to come out by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. But there's no power in secondhand revelation. People have, people have great encounters with God. It begins these movements. But when the next generation doesn't have the same encounter, it becomes a dead monument. It becomes lifeless. And so every generation has to have a fresh revelation of the goodness, grace, and glory of God. That's a requirement 
in the kingdom. So they were casting out demons. There were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did this. And so they found a demon-possessed person, and the evil spirit said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who the heck are you? So, so the demon spirit said, you're right, Jesus is pretty well known in our realm. Now so is Paul, but who are you guys? And so they had no answer. Because you can't defeat the devil off of someone else's revelation. So, because you have to in 2023 or whenever you're listening or watching this video, in this moment in culture, if you don't know who you are, you're in for a beating. You're in for a weapon. And you're also in for a transformational trauma that will shape you into someone you're not. If you don't know who you are, someone will tell you that doesn't have your best interests in mind. So what happens next is here's the four things, the negative results of not knowing who you are in Christ. Number one, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them. They fled out of the house naked and wounded. So the evil spirit leaped on them and overpowered them. The first trait of a person who's not walking in the full realization of their identity is they live defeated. Let me help you. In the kingdom of God, there's no the- theology of defeat. Let me just quote a couple things. You're more than conquerors. That's not defeatism. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's not defeatism. So the Bible tells us, here's who you really are. You're a world conqueror. You're a world shaker. You're a history maker. And, and so the Bible tells us that. But when we don't know it, we'll live in defeat. Everyone goes through moments of seasons or of defeat. When a season becomes a lifestyle or a lifelong burden, when you feel you're defeated your whole life, it's not because something bad happened to you. It's because you don't know who you are. Because bad things happen to everybody. They happen to everybody. What happens to the champions? They get back up. I'm not belittling anybody. I went through a serious life-threatening depression. God just had to remind me who I was. He loved me out of it through identity, through grace. Okay. Number two, when someone lives defeated long enough, they lose control over parts of their life. A defeated person gives up the reins, gives up controlling authority to certain regions of their life. The sign of a person not knowing their identity is they've lost control. So things are out of control. The devil makes people do hideous things, compulsive things, obsessive things, hurtful things, destructive things. No one who's demon-possessed ever gets smarter. The devil loves mocking the dignity of man in the eyes of God. Now, Now, here's my point. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's thought, if it's a fear, if it's anxiety or depression like I had. I don't care if it's a drug, if it's alcohol, if it's pornography, if it's some other psychological condition that they say you're, you're, you're obsessive in this way. Yeah, you may have a tendency toward that, but that's not who you are. Here's who you are. You're 
more than a conqueror. And you have authority. And so stand your ground. No. No, I'm not going to live tormented. I'm not going to go to bed every night in terror. I, I'm not going to be afraid to leave my house. This was my story 30 years ago. No, the devil's a liar. I want to walk boldly and confidently, joyously and expectantly. I'm believing the best is to come. So the third point is this. After, the, after this demon had defeated them and now has them under control, he, he calculatedly stripped all of them naked. So, so here's the point. People really begin to lose a sense of who they are, their own personal, significant, unique identity in Christ, and of self-worth, the dignity that God has implanted into every person. They lose that when they don't have control in their life and they're living in defeat. The enemy stripped them naked. I just got good news for you. You're going to get some clothes back. Come on, Jesus is taking you to Nordstrom's, wherever you shop. My wife shops at Nordstrom's. It's called Last Chances. It's the Holy Ghost Nordstrom's. And the last thing that happened was they, he would, they, this demon wounded them. It's the Greek word traumatizo. When I saw that years ago, it really spoke to me. Because I realized that often trauma, when people go through trauma, the lingering effect psychologically, physically, whatever it is, the lingering effect is that they've been turned into someone they were never meant to be. Because when you have a trauma that's controlling, that's defeating, that's stripping long enough, people will identify you by your trauma instead of who you are. Oh, that's that person, that person with this or that. And, and so God wants you to be who he, want, he called you to be. Amen? I've been through some things. Those things don't define me. That's not my identity. Come on. I, I, I've been through stuff. That's not, not my So the reciprocal, the beautiful counterbalance, the beautiful uh, uh, healing narrative for these four things is found in the book of Luke chapter 15. So I'll just kind of fast forward this. Parable of the prodigal son. Father has two sons. The younger son prematurely takes his inheritance, immediately goes to a far foreign land, and spends his inheritance, wastes his inheritance on prodigal living, wasteful living. And when he ran out of money, he ran out of friends. When he ran out of friends, he became hungry. He got so hungry, he took a job at a pig farm. He's a Jewish person. This meant something to the ears of people Christ was talking to. He ended up serving the thing that he hates. And he was so hungry, he envied the food he was giving the pigs. And one day, the Bible says, he came to himself. Oh, thank you, Lord. And in the pig pen, this, he never stopped being a son, even when he was living like a pig. <laughs> that would sound more poetic. It's not really. <laughs> you ain't pigs, you're sons. Come on. And so the Bible says, he said to himself, I'm going to go home. He said, because my dad's servants are treated better than this. It was the goodness of his father that initiated his journey back home. But as he's going home, Christ talks about this twice in this parable, emphasizing it. He said, 
I'm going to say to my father, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just make me a slave. I've lost the right to be who I was born to be because of sin. Sin turns sons into slaves. And so while he's still a great way off, the father sees him, races down the hill, embraces him. Now, now he would be smelly, his clothes would be ratted and, and torn, his face would be covered with mud, he would be diminished physically, lost weight. So he's, he's, he's struggling, he's coming home, his dad scoops him up, loves him, kisses him, and the son begins a speech, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father ignores it all because it's coming from a broken heart, a broken person who's lost their identity. And the father says, I, I know how to fix you. Welcome to the Father's house where God restores our identity. God reveals our authority. God manifests our destiny. And, and so the, the Father, while the Son's talking, the Father says to the servant next to him, go back home and go get my best robe. Because the first thing I'm going to do is heal his identity. So when you came to Christ, we all came with the, Paul calls them, you know, the rags with filthy rags. We all came the best person on the planet, the most moral and good-hearted person without Christ. Still their clothes are in God's, they're imperfect to the point of being filthy rags. But when you come to Christ, he takes off that garment and he gives us the righteousness of Christ. He dresses us with what Jesus wears. <laughs> come on, ladies. Have you ever gone up to a person and say, where'd you get that? That's lovely. Men don't normally talk like that, but sometimes they do. Where'd you get that? That's lovely. And, and God wants you to wear righteousness. So people say, man, I just really admire the way you carry yourself. You walk, you're loving, but you're dignified. You have authority. You're strong, but kind. You're walking in your kingdom, Matt, your kingdom identity. It's so important because the Bible is a book of identity, not just behavior. Whenever the church, whenever religion demands people by rules change their lives before they've had a revelation of their identity, all they do is further burden them with, 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 with things they can't do. Because the Bible says, when you find out who you are in Jesus, here's what that looks like. Here's what that looks like. Oh, the church needs to stop sinning. I know the church does. So do you, by the way. Part of your sin is you're judging everyone else. Jesus said people that do that usually have logs in their eyeballs. But, but maybe the way we change behavior is by embracing a new identity. Keep putting on the new until it's really you. And watch it. So, so anyways, the father says, go get my best robe because I'm going to tell him who he is. Please stay with me. No matter what happened in your natural home, your bringing, your religious background, your life to now, you're in a season when God's ready to awaken who you really are. See, we're, we're, we're praying for revival. Every time Moises starts singing like that, I feel like I'm about to have a personal revival. I have, we're praying, and we want to be a church of constant moves of God, constant revival. But, but, but the way we change this world is by embracing an identity that allows us to transform culture, to be agents of change. And so changed people change people. 
Heal people, heal people. Love people, love people. Bless people, bless people. We want to be that kind of influence in our world. The second thing the father said, go get my signet ring. In ancient times, in antiquity, they didn't often use signatures. They sealed documents, legally or important documents, financial documents, with a ring had a big seal on it, a family seal or a kingdom seal. And so they would stamp it. You know, you see like the movies. They would stamp it with their seal. And so what the father was saying to this, I'm going to give you back the authority that sin took from you. <clears throat> how, how could Shema grab a rake and stand in the middle of a field facing 30, 40 Philistine warriors and say, come on, boys. It's because he knew he had authority. Because he was a child of God through Abraham. He had a covenant with God through Abraham. And any person that knew that could defeat the enemies. So we walk in authority. Now this is such a big thing. Because the devil will keep taking from you until you tell him no. We had two of our testimonies. Both Bonnie and Pastor, jo Pastor Bonnie and Pastor Joan both said time. No, devil, you can't have my family, my health, my business, whatever it is. No, 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 no. And, and, and so we, we, we want to look at the culture instead of feeling overwhelmed by saying, no, no, that's, that stuff doesn't work. First, of, first off, it doesn't work. Eventually it would fail by itself. But we're just stopping it. We're rebuking it from coming into our world, our families, our lives. Our neighborhoods, whatever, our church, our school, whatever it is. The third thing the father said was, go get new sandals. Because destiny is the reward of discovered identity. When you find out who you are, the path opens up. Every time you ask God, God, show me the big thing you have in my life, he'll show you who you are. Here's who you are. Let me show you this, because this unlocks that. God can't give you a destiny when you're walking in the wrong identity. He can't do it. You have to know who you are. Lastly, they killed the fatted calf. Prosperity, enough finance or enough resource to fulfill your mission, your purpose, your destiny, whatever it is, okay? So, so third point, last point, I'm all done. Are you ready to take a stand? You have authority to stand for every field God's given you. In 2003, we began our church. Our church is now 20 years old. And um, we're so grateful. Miracle, miracle, miracle church. So the only prophecy God gave me for the first several years of the church was this. I was driving down I-17. And like he was sitting in the car next to me, I heard a voice. And it said, Phoenix is your promised land. That's it. Didn't say where, when, how, who, what. He just said, this is it. That's all I needed. Because I knew I have unstoppable authority in any region, any territory, any field God's given me. Come on. The time will come, you know, if you want to be a prayer warrior, just have a baby. You, know, you pray for our children a lot when they're little. You, you, you never, Mary and I never stop praying for our kids. We want God's best. We keep praying for them. 
Now, here's my point. We have authority unique with our kids. We don't, we don't tell, I don't tell. My awesome son, Tim's here this week and his beautiful wife, Melissa, and Rosie and Romeo. So I don't tell Tim, hey, Tim, you need to do this. Well, he wouldn't listen to it. And it's not appropriate. See, the more mature you get, the less like controlling influence. Something's wrong when grown people can't make decisions. But anyways, but I don't tell Timmy what to do. I just pray and ask Jesus to tell Timmy what to do. You know with me? That, Lord, your kingdom come, you will be done my whatever you have for him. Do it. So, it's, so that, that's the way you do it. I have authority. When my kids really want something done, my four adult kids, from 42 down to 29, when my kids want something done, they call their mother. Mom, would you pray? Because sweet little quiet Mary gets in her little prayer closet and beats the hell out of the devil for, for the kids. She doesn't beat me so far. No, they, God, I mean, we, my kids see real miracles when she prays. It's her field, our field. Come on, come on. It's been a while. Mayor Phil Gordon, a couple of years ago, called us. He's, he's in a panic. Phoenix had simultaneously two serial killers. So we have two maniacs in our street who are killing arbitrarily. People are afraid on the freeway. It's crazy, cray cray. So he, our, our Jewish mayor, Phil Gordon, says, can you guys pray? So I, I said, thank you for asking us. I sent a letter to 500 churches. This Sunday we're praying and we're stopping this nonsense. Listen, it gone on. One of them was two years, the other was 18 months. We ch I don't know how many other churches prayed, but I sent a letter to at least 500 churches. On Tuesday it ended. We prayed on Sunday, ended on Tuesday. Like that. Now here's my point. We have authority here. So where God planted us. I'm going to go, I'm ministering in Seattle. I'm going to minister. So when I go to another city, I don't have authority. I borrow the pastor's authority. I come under his authority. And I minister. And then when I leave, I leave that authority there. It's not my city. I don't have authority in your family. I can agree with you. I can help you. I can help you stand. But ultimately, you have to stand for your family. Come on. I, I don't have authority in your business, your ministry. That, that's not the way the kingdom works. The kingdom works, he gives you authority. You take a stand. It's time to take a stand. It's time the devil, tell the devil his time's up. It's time to see miracles like Pastor Bonnie's and Pastor Joints shared in their family. It's time for breakthroughs. And all God really needs is for someone to stand. Thank you for listening to me today. Would you please stand your feet?
As you stand, I want you to think with me in closing this thought. Where in my world is God wanting to move and inviting me to take a stand? Let me say it like this. Where has the devil been ripping you off consistently? No. It's got to end. It's going to end. One dude took a stand, defeated a whole troop. And the Bible says, and God won a great victory. God was just waiting for someone to stand. Come on. He's just waiting for someone to stand. I don't, I'm sorry if there's not a lot of Christians in your family yet, but God doesn't need a lot. Jesus said, what, Jesus was talking about faith and the disciples were feeling overwhelmed. He said, boy, stop it. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the smallest plant seed, I've done a couple of mustard sermons. They're always funny, and they always make a mess at church. But they, I, I used to, when we had bulletins, I taped them to bulletins when we passed them out. They're almost microscopic. And Jesus said, "That's you only need that much faith. Why? Because God's so big, you only need that much faith to unleash him into your world. It's not the greatness of your faith. It's the greatness of your God. But God needs us to have faith. Well, Pastor, I don't feel like I have much faith. I, I, I know, but you got that much. Stand. Come on. Stand for your marriage. Stand for your children. Stand for your health. Stand for this city. Stand for this generation. Take a stand. Joshua said, me and my house will serve the Lord. Taking a stand. I don't know what's happening in your life. I just know God's ready to reverse the course. God's ready to turn things around. God's ready to give you back what the enemy stole from you. God's ready to restore the years to you. God's ready to give you a testimony of a comeback and a breakthrough and a resurrection and a healing. If you can just stand, no matter how many times you've been knocked down, it's time to stand. No matter how many times you've been disappointed, it's time to stand. No matter how many years you've lived in defeat, it's time Time to stand and believe God. Stand in your field. Stand for your family. Stand for your business. Stand for your ministry. Stand for your marriage. Stand for your children. It doesn't matter what it is. Take a stand and let God show you what he can do with just one person that takes a stand for him. Come on, give God a shout of praise. Thank you, Lord. Prayer team, if you please join me down front. God, I thank you. So many great testimonies are about to erupt in this church, in this moment, because people are taking a stand. God, we thank you and praise you for what you're about to do. Thank you, Jesus. Uh, as we in today's service, close today's service, we want to invite folks that need prayer, want prayer. We're a house of prayer. We believe in healing. We believe God answers prayer. And we, we count it a great honor to pray for you. We really do. If you need prayer today, don't, don't, don't go home without receiving it. The most important thing that will happen today is someone giving their heart to Jesus. If you've never known the saving grace of a loving God, today's your day. The Bible says... Jesus, in the, in the second chapter of Revelation, I stand at the door and knock. That's Jesus speaking. If anyone opens the door, I will come in. 
that was an invitation to believers and to the whole world to know Christ. If you don't know him yet, we'd be so honored to pray for you. If you've been away from God, make this your homecoming day. Take a stand today. Don't let the devil steal another week, another day, another moment. Number three, if you need a healing in your body, we believe in praying for people that need healing or healing in your mind. We'd be honored to pray for you. If maybe you're just going through the hardest week ever, I'm proud of you for being at church today. Let someone pray for you. Anyone need, needing prayer for those reasons or any other reason, please join us down front. Church, just for 60 seconds longer, would you worship God with me while those seeking prayer come forward? Seeing death could not hold you, the veil torn before you, you silenced the post of sin and The heavens are open, the praise of your glory, for you are raised to life humble to surf here. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Stay here as long as you want. We'll keep worshiping and praying for folks until everyone has prayed for that wants that. You're an awesome church. Have an awesome week. God bless you. See you at the end.